0: And to the angel of the church in Smyrna wrote, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, and you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And this is the word of the Lord. Praise be to him. Amen. Amen. As you sit, stay right there in in Revelation chapter 2. And in light of us hearing the word of God as Emily just read it to us, let me ask this question. Has following Jesus proven costly to you in any way? Or if I could ask it, looking out ahead in our life, are you prepared to follow Christ when it does prove to be costly? Are you prepared for that? Am I prepared for that? Are we prepared for that? Are we bought in and all in on following Christ, even in what I'm calling throughout this message today, costly faithfulness? Are we prepared to follow in costly faithfulness? See, nearly every generation of Jesus followers throughout Christian histories, they seem to carry with them this understanding that following Jesus would cost them in some way. And they prepared their hearts and their lives for that reality. And yet, I think there's a temptation, right, today to have an approach of, I'll follow Jesus up to the point that it costs me. Are we prepared for this? In this letter today, it it calls a group of Christians to costly faithfulness and tells us why costly faithfulness to Christ will prove deeply, deeply worth the cost paid. And so we heard the beginning of this address. If you look in uh, Revelation 2 verse 8, we read, it says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Now, uh, to understand this letter Jesus is writing to Christians in Smyrna, we need to understand a little bit about the city of Smyrna. Smyrna was a seaport about 35 miles north of Ephesus, which we studied that letter last week. And um, uh, Smyrna was a thriving seaport. It was the most direct seaport to Athens, which made it a a popular place for commerce and uh, a popular travel point for the part of the known world at the time. About 700 years before what we're reading here today, the city of Smyrna was leveled by the king of Lydia. And about 300 years after that, Alexander the Great commissioned this edict that Smyrna was to be rebuilt. And when they rebuilt Smyrna, they spared no expense. And so uh, Smyrna at this time was uh, known for its architecture, it was known for its beauty, it was known for its flowers and its gardens, all nestled into this like most pleasant climate that you could ever imagine. And so uh, Smyrna was a popular, popular place. A beautiful place. And yet, in all of its beauty, this was anything but a pleasant or beautiful place for Christians to call home. And Christ knows that. He knows that and he identifies himself as one who can identify with what they are facing when he says the rest of what we read in verse 8. He says the, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Remember, each of the headers over these letters have deep significance for the Christians in which Christ is writing to in in those particular cities. And so Christ identifies himself as as the the first and the last. He's speaking to his eternality. He, He is the eternal one. He always has been, he is, and he always will be. What that means is he has been sovereign over the uh, events of the past, he's sovereign over the events of the present, and he will be sovereign over the events of the future. And so he said, Christians in Smyrna, you persecuted ones, know that the one speaking to you today is the one who has been and will be. I'm sovereign over all that has been. I'm sovereign over all that will be. And then he identifies himself as one who knows death. He says he's the one who died and came to life. And so he's not just addressing them in the midst of their suffering. He's saying, I am one acquainted personally with suffering, suffering unto death. He's the one who died and came to life. And and Jesus wants them to know from the get-go that he is a Savior who knows death. He is a Savior who's triumphed over death. And now, as as chapter 1 of Revelation told us, he now holds the keys to death and to Hades. Does that make you feel good that your Savior is the holder of the keys to death and Hades? He wants them to hear this on the front end. Because at the climactic moment of this letter, he's going to call them to be faithful unto death. And so this Lord, who acquainted himself with death, is calling his followers to be faithful unto death. And so this is a letter written to believers calling them to costly faithfulness. And what is written to them now reverberates down through time to us. And what we have today is a gift from God to instruct our hearts to be prepared for costly faithfulness and following Jesus ourself. And so today we we huddle around this letter and, and we huddle around this message and we unite our hearts and commit our lives together to faithfulness to Christ no matter the cost. Church, listen to me. Faithfulness to Christ no matter the cost. That's what we're going after today. We will be faithful to Christ no matter the cost. And there's five things in this letter I just want to pull out that, that we see how, how following Jesus and faithfulness to Jesus has been costly to the believers in Smyrna and I believe will be costly to us as we seek to follow Jesus as well. And now, as we walk through these five things, let me just warn you up front, the intensity of the cost escalates as we make our way through. And, and, and there are going to be moments today where we're like, Whoa! This is this is this is heavy teaching. This is a hard teaching. But I but I want to encourage us with something. I want to I want to encourage us with the hope that is held out to us in the midst of the heaviness. And that you know those times you've done hard things with people. You're about to do something hard. You're about to do something that you know will take will be painful and will take endurance. And you're huddled up together, and you're like, man, this is going to be hard. In fact, this might be awful. And yet you're smiling together and you're like, "And it's going to be awesome." That is what we have to realize today. Nowhere in Scripture did Jesus promise a better roses in this life and following him. Yeah. And so we huddle together today and we say, "Guess what, brothers and sisters, it is going to be hard at times. Smile on our face. let's go. You with me?" And so that's what we seek to accomplish today as we study this letter. Father, help us. We, we don't like pain. We don't like trial. We don't, in our flesh, like tribulation and hardship. And yet, Lord, uh, you've given us a gift today to prepare our hearts for faithfulness to you, no matter the cost. And so, God, by the power of your Spirit and through the power of your Word, Speak to the hearts of your people, to our hearts. Let our hearts hear. Lord, our hearts have to hear today. Only you can do that, God, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The letter begins, verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And so verse 9, right away, gives us what I see as three specific ways that the, the, the church in Smyrna are suffering for their faithfulness to Christ. It mentions tribulation, I know your tribulation, and I know your poverty, and I know the slander. And so I, I want to I take the first of those for our first point today, and I want to say it like this. We will be faithful to Christ in the face of pain. We'll be faithful to Christ in the face of pain. When, when Jesus uh, begins this and he says, I know your tribulation, that is both a sobering reality and a very comforting reality. It's sobering because it it, it it tells them and it tells us that part of faithfulness to Christ may include tribulation. That word uh tribulation uh it, it, it means it means uh pain, it means hostility, um, uh, it means affliction. And he says, I know, I know this tribulation, but then the comforting part is that he knows it, he sees it. He has not distanced himself from us in the midst of pain and tribulation and affliction. And so the believers in Smyrna, and this is a really, really important piece of theology that we have to understand as Jesus followers. The believers in Smyrna are sharing in the sufferings of Christ. One of the teachings throughout Scripture, not just in these letters, throughout Scripture, is that as followers of Jesus, that we would share in his sufferings. This is deeply biblical, and we cannot miss it. To follow Christ is to share in his sufferings. As I said in the introduction, throughout the majority of Christian history, believers expected tribulation. They expected pain. They expected affliction associated with following Christ. And not only did they expect it, they embraced it as a privilege. And if you think that's embellishing, all we have to do is flip back to the book of Acts and when they were beaten for the bold proclamation of the gospel, they went away and they said that we would even be counted worthy to suffer for his name. We see what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter three, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. When Jesus invited people into discipleship, With the words, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow, they counted the cost and understood the reality of what that might actually mean. And now, fast forward to today. And and much of what we know, and and this is a critique, and I don't mean to be overly like judgmental, it's just a critique, much of what we know in American discipleship mindset is this, that we've, we've for the most part lost a theology of sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Anyone with me on that? We've lost, for the most part, a theology, broadly speaking, of sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And it's my hope for myself today, for you, and for us together, that this letter we are studying right here would be used by God to resurrect a right theology of that. And so let me ask some questions around this idea. Forwards into the letter, Jesus says he sees their tribulation. He sees their affliction. What is your theology of suffering for Christ? Let me ask you like this. Do you have a follow him at any cost or follow him until it costs view of discipleship? A follow him at any cost or a follow him until it costs view of discipleship? See, see, when Jesus walked the earth, crowds followed him at times. They gathered and they followed him. And they're like, he's healing people. He's doing miracles. His teaching is like nothing we've ever heard. And then Jesus would give a message on the costliness of following him. And what most of them do? Yeah, we're out. The crowds would gather and he'd stand up and say, "Uh, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot partake with me. And they're like, yeah, we're out now. Crowds followed him. But when he called them to costly faithfulness, many of them were out. See, there are no, and I've said it, I've said it before, I want to say it again. There are no promises in the Bible of Christians avoiding the road of suffering. But there are ample promises of his nearness and his presence with us in the midst of this suffering. Amen. When faithfulness to Christ means tribulation, when it means pain, We need to have developed a right theology of sharing in his sufferings, and it seems the believers in Smyrna had. Now, as you continue to read this letter, it seems to get more specific for us in what what ways in particular these believers were experiencing tribulation. They were experiencing pain. You look back at verse 9. He says, I know your tribulation, and then right after that, he says, and your poverty. But what's the little parenthetical note he makes after that little, sentence, little phrase there, and your poverty? What's he say after that? But you are what? But you're rich. Second thing I want us to see from this letter today is this. We'll be faithful to Christ in the face of poverty. We will be faithful to Christ in the face of poverty of po- poverty. The, the tribulation, the pain that these believers experience, it led to poverty. They are poor because of their faithfulness to Christ and his cause. Now uh, uh, Colin Hemer has done some work on, on why exactly would believers have experienced po- poverty in a city like Smyrna. Uh, a couple of things he notes is this. One, their their property was attacked and destroyed by opponents because of their faith. Two, Uh, They were already starting as lower-class citizens in the community due to their Christian faith. Three, there was a reality, a very real reality of job loss and of difficulty securing jobs in a pagan-driven economy because of their Christian faith. So to follow Christ in Smyrna meant to be faced with poverty as your reality, and the believers in Smyrna had committed to a biblical stand even though it would affect their bottom line. Are you committed to a biblical stand even if, even if it affects your bottom line? Right? It, it, kind of an a easy question to bring up in theoretical ways as we sit in church, but we really got to get to an understanding. Am I committed to a biblical stand even if it affects your bottom line? Now, let's go back to this parenthetical in which Christ says. He says, I I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are, say it again, but you are, but you are rich. Now, would you rather, would you rather be rich by how God defines rich or rich by how the world defines rich? Would you rather? Now, in raising that question, you got to hear me. I'm not saying these two things are always mutually exclusive. You can be rich by the standards of the world and rich by the standards of Christ, but I'm raising the question, would you rather, if you had to choose, what riches do you want? Do you want to be rich towards God? If that might mean poor financially, or would you rather choose rich financially if it meant being poor towards God? Uh, Some of the the greatest lessons God has taught me in my life has happened while I've spent time on the continent of Africa. Uh, I was 19 years old, the first trip there in Kenya. Um, uh, Your eyes are exposed to poverty like you've never seen it before. Uh, The orphanage we were uh, serving at, you know, and I've I've shared stories throughout the years. The orphanage we were serving at, as mealtime rolled around each time, the, the, the meal that you knew that you were lining up to get was Beans. Mixed up this way, prepared this way, crushed a different way, but beans. Uh, soccer games were played with wadded up uh, shirts wrapped in tape. And they served as as the ball for a game played in bare feet. Uh, the last night there, they threw us a feast. They, they, they roasted one of their goats and they, they rolled out on a cart assorted sodas. And you should have seen the face of the place as they're like, oh my goodness, the sodas are coming out. It was, you know, at 19 years old, poverty like I had never seen it. And yet, you got to know something. This place was rich. Rich in love for God and others. Rich in generosity. Rich in the joy of the Lord. Rich in trust for God to provide. Rich in contentment over what God had given them and not discontentment over what he hadn't. They were Rich. And it's when our hearts are more set on being rich toward God that we can withstand financial hardship that may come through faithfulness to Christ. If faithfulness to Christ means financial hardship, are you prepared to be faithful? Because here's the deal. In an increasingly post-Christian culture, it will become an increasing reality for the potential that faithfulness to Christ and the ways of Christ may carry negative financial implications for you. Now to some of you in the room, let me just call this out. Now to some of you in the room, that might sound like crazy talk of some extremist, alarmist preacher standing on a stage with a Bible in front of him. My heart today is not to be an extremist nor an alarmist. My heart today is to be a biblicist. To just lay God's word in front of us and say throughout Scripture, He seems to have a message for us to be prepared to follow Him at all costs. Now, let me just give an example that, that this reality might be nearer to hitting home in our central Indiana context than than, than we even might realize. Um, I would encourage you to go research Ordinance 3121 being proposed by the city of West Lafayette, Indiana, and ask yourself this question. What would that mean for biblical counseling ministries? And one of the leading biblical counseling ministries in, for all of the country has a campus in West Lafayette, Indiana, what would that mean if Ordinance 3121 goes through for biblical counseling ministries who use the Bible to counsel on biblical stands that the ordinance brings up? And how them taking a biblical approach to the issue of Ordinance 3121 would lead to a $1,000 a day fine each time they deem this kind of counseling to be happening. So Ordinance 3121 in West Lafayette, Indiana, should it go through, we'll put biblical counselors in a position of staying faithful to Christ at the risk of financial penalty. It just will. I mean Again, my, my, my heart isn't to be like overly political about this. I'm just saying this is the increasing reality of what will be true in the cultural context in which we live. And so my heart is to prepare us for what's been true for so much of Christianity. And what's been true for so much of Christian history is the reality that faithfulness to Christ can and often has been accompanied with the prospects of poverty in cultures that are hostile to the gospel. And you might hear that today and go, yeah, but we're sitting in Greenwood, Indiana. This isn't true for us today or tomorrow or next month or next year or next decade. And you might be totally right of that. My question for our hearts today is are we prepared should that become our reality? And when that reality comes, when God and money come at a crossroads, we will truly find out what Jesus taught us, whether God really is God or whether money truly is. Now, This next next costly faithfulness that is spoken into probably is one we have felt or will feel in a much more near-term way as a follower of Jesus. Back to verse 9, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And then he says this, And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Third third costly faithfulness I want us to say together today is this. We'll be faithful to Christ in the face of slander. We'll be faithful to Christ in the face of slander. Now, slander is to make false and damaging statements against someone. We are told that the source of this slander against the believers in this city uh, is from the Jews, or from, as, as the way uh, Christ addresses it, from those who are say, they, say they are Jews, but are not. Now, there was a very strong Jewish population in the city of Smyrna. And throughout the Roman Empire at the time, Jews actually enjoyed a, a relative level of, of, of rights and of freedoms. And so uh, Christians were always a big threat to the Jews. They didn't want to lose the rights and the privileges they had in the Roman Empire, and so they would attack the Christians. They would slander the Christians, in hopes of not being lumped in and associated with them. And the way they would slander the Christians are through, are, are through saying things like this: "Hey, hey, Jesus taught that they're to eat his flesh and drink his blood. This, these are these are crazy cannibals." They would they would say things like, "Jesus taught that he was the only true king. What what a threat against the emperor." And this is the kind of slander that made life extremely, extremely difficult for Christians in cities like Smyrna. And Jesus has some harsh words against these Jews. He calls out their claim to be God's people. Hey, he says, those who say they're Jews, those who, those who want to identify as my people, these aren't my people at all. In fact, what they are is a synagogue of Satan cooperating with Satan to attack those who are truly my people. Those are harsh words that Jesus has for them there. But the believers here were faithful in the face of this slander. Are we prepared to stand faithful to Christ in the face of slander? In the face of false and damaging claims and accusations against us? See, saying what God says on some matters that are not Popular takes in our culture will lead to slander. What is is a loving message on the part of Christians at times will be called hateful by others. The ways in which we're trying to propagate what God calls is right will at times be called wrong. Again, in an increasing post-Christian culture, biblical truth will be met with more and more slanderous responses. Our motives will come under question. Our love will come under question. What we believe and teach will come under question. And often this will come to no surprise to us from those who make no claims of faithfulness to Jesus. Sometimes it will surprisingly come from those who profess Jesus themselves but have deviated away into unsound doctrine. Are we prepared for that? Now, in light of this fact that faithfulness to Christ will increasingly mean being slandered and antagonistically attacked, can I encourage us with how the Christian is to love and act in the face of that? So when we're slandered, when we're attacked, how are we to act? Well, we take our cues from our master. We do not fight evil with evil. Let me hear you, church. We do not respond whether they said this or we say this. We fight evil with love. We take our cues from our Lord, who, as it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, when when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We entrust ourselves to the Lord when that happens. We take our cues from Jesus, who when he said in Matthew chapter 5, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So when slandered, what do we do? We love and we pray. I I, I say this so that we do not take on the need or the responsibility of being these brash crusaders against culture in a manner or a posture in which our Lord himself never took. When slandered, when attacked, when your character is questioned by culture because of your fidelity to Christ, your response is patience and love and praying for those who revile you. God, help us with that. Amen. Now, I'll tell you all something. You know me well enough. My emotions are right here all the time. Easy to preach. Hard to live when you're in the heat of the conversation. Lord, help us. Now, as the letter goes on, the, the Lord in verse 9, what he's been saying is, I I know, I know, I know, I know your tribulation, I know, I know your poverty, I know the slander. Now he's gonna tell him, now you need to prepare for some some other stuff that's coming. And you're like, what more's coming? They've already been through it. What more could possibly be coming? Verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. What's the command there? What are they not to do with what they're about to suffer? Don't fear this. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Fourth thing I want us to see today is this. We'll be faithful to Christ in the face of prison. And again, if, if you're new to the church or you're new to the faith, you're like, well, what are these people talking about? Like we're not going to walk out of here in central Indiana and get cuffed for our commitment to Christ. I want to let the word of God guide us in these things. Uh, they, Paul warns them, for some of you, the reality, the coming reality is imprisonment. And the way he says it, he says, for 10 days. Now, in the book of Revelation, where numbers carry significant symbolic meaning, what this probably indicates is is a a, a duration, a, a time of not long duration. So for a time of not long duration, some of you will face prison and intense tribulation. And he says, be faithful in the face of this. For many Christians in places of persecution around the, remember, the word of God is not just the word of God for our American Christian context, right? The word of God is the word of God for believers living all over the world. And so for, for many believers living all over the world right now, that, this sermon point of being faithful in the face of prison is not some theoretical question of what if that could possibly happen one day? That day for them is today. Like they're literally faced with it. Like they read this and they're like, they look around at each other's eyes and they don't even need to say anything. And they're like, yes, heart to heart, hand to hand, faithful to Christ in the face of prison, let's go. It's the reality in which they live. And, and, And I've said this throughout the whole message. It's been a reality for much of Christendom. What if our reality here is actually the exception in Christian history and not what's been the norm? And what if it becomes more of the norm one day? Are we prepared for that? I am not saying here today all of us in this room will one day go to prison for faithfulness to Christ. I'm asking us, is our heart prepared to be faithful if it should come? Which leads straight into the climactic cost of the letter. The climactic call to costly faithfulness of the letter. See, the hearers then knew there was one very real possible outcome to Roman imprisonment, and one real and very possible outcome to Roman imprisonment was Roman execution. They knew that. And so when he says in verse 10, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto what? Be faithful unto death. Here at church, be faithful unto death. Fifth thing, we'll be faithful to Christ in the face of death. Are you committed to something worth dying for? Are you committed to anything worth dying for? You aren't truly alive to God until he is so supremely valuable that you're ready and willing to die in every way to yourself. Jesus was up front with us when he called us to discipleship with language of crucifixion and death. Stephen understood it as he was being stoned to death and looked up and saw Jesus himself and is worshiping his way to heaven as he is being physically stoned. Paul understood it when he said in Acts 20, verse 24, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And again, when he said in Philippians 1.21, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Perpetua understood it. A 22-year-old wife and new mother who in the third century refused to renounce Christ and paid the penalty of her life for it. Jim Elliot got it. And saying, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And then living that mantra, speared to death with his friends as they attempted to take the gospel to tribesmen in Ecuador. Bonhoeffer got it when he said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Naima Gada, a woman in Sudan who stayed in the war zone seeking to share and show Jesus to the warring Islamic factions and her staying and not fleeing would lead to her bombing and her subsequent death. Not all of us in the room today will be forced to be faithful to the point of death. But Christ does demand that all of us in the room today bring our hearts to the place where we're willing to be faithful to the point of death. But why? Why? Why not just instead choose to live the greatest life of pleasure? and of ease, and of avoiding pain. Why subject yourself to pain, and poverty, and slander, and possible prison, and possible death? Why, church? Look in your Bibles. Why? Be faithful unto death. And I will give you, end of verse 10, and I will give you what? That's why. Do you believe that? No, really, 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 Deep down in the gut of your heart, do you believe that? That all of that is truly worth it for the day in which there is a crown of life that is given. Now, this is a big theme in the book of Revelation. The theme of conquering. that, that, That idea of conquering is to stand victorious over the foe. And so when you think of the crown of life, what what the readers would have had in their head would would be a crown placed on the athletic victor or on the victor in war. And and he says, be faithful unto death, because even if it should mean your death, that is not defeat, that is victory. You will be crowned with a crown of life. And he goes on to say it not only in the positive, you'll be crowned with a crown of life. He goes to state it in the, in the negative as well. Verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The one who is a conqueror in Christ, the victor in Christ, though they could take your body out of this world Those who are Christ will not be subject to the second death in which they will be, those who don't know Christ will be cast out away from his presence forever. That's why it's worth it. In every, listen to me now, in every area of life, we are, we agree to go through pain if we believe the outcome of that pain is worth it. Krista Threlfall, in a, a great article she wrote in Bible Study Magazine, said it like this. She said, I don't enjoy pain, and all gets people said. In fact, I go to great lengths to avoid it. But I've willingly endured intense pain each time I've given birth. And I will co- quickly subject myself to pain in order to, re- to receive life-saving surgery. Why? Because the end results, children and health, are worth the pain of labor and of surgery. Similarly, when Christians refuse to give up the belief that God's way is perfect and His plan is loving, while they're smack in the middle of a long road of pain and suffering, their lives loudly shout the message the pain I go through in this life cannot compare to the joy of remaining faithful to my Savior. It can't compare. It can't compare. It can't compare. compare. God, give us a vision of eternity that helps our hearts believe that. Where we'll gladly take on pain and subject ourselves to poverty and to be slandered and misunderstood. And if it means prison, it means prison. And Lord, please help our hearts, even if it means death, it means death. Because even in death, in what the world will look at and say is ultimate defeat, we rise victorious as conquerors in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's so worth it. And so church, will you just stand to your feet? I don't know where you're at. I think there's two dangers to a message like today. I think the first danger is for you to hear it and go, I'm, I'm, I'm so scared now. That's terrifying. I would just say to you what Jesus says to this church, do not fear, do not fear. I think an equally harmful response to a message like today is just to be flippant, eh, eh. No, 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 no. Jesus, faithful to you, no matter the cost. Because no matter what it costs us, we're victorious for eternity on the other side of it. Jake, will you sing?